The What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm your host, Ben Tapper, and today we're going to be talking about black history, but probably not in the way that you're used to talking about it. I'm not interested in discussing the impact of George Washington Carver, long live the peanut, or Harriet Tubman. I don't want to explore Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail or Malcolm's Hajj or pilgrimage to Mecca. And I, I certainly don't want to discuss the shortfall of the civil rights movement or the purposeful gutting of the black power movement. I mean, we could discuss any of those things, but I want to take our attention from lofty ideology to lived experience. And today, I want to talk about riots. And I'm not going to give you any more than that. So if this sounds remotely interesting, keep listening, because today we're asking the question, what would it take to listen to the unheard? You live long enough, you start to see cycles repeating themselves time and time again. One such cycle that I've grown accustomed to seeing play out goes something like this. A tragedy sparked by systemic oppression strikes the black community. Tensions boil over and people begin to take to the streets. And for about 3.5 seconds, the demonstrators are categorized as peaceful. And then, of course, the police presence increases. Suddenly, there's violence and property damage. And the media coverage begins talking about and focusing on the looting the violence, and the property damage. Then people start calling for peace and nonviolence, and the tragedy that sparked the entire cycle is forgotten and ignored. So my conclusion here is that at the end of the day, what we care about more than anything else is property. Because property equals wealth, or at least the potential to build wealth. And remember, private property rights were a foundational principle to our constitution and thus to our supposed democracy. But I digress. Because as soon as there's property damage, we label any protesters as rioters and start asking, when will order be restored? And why can't people just remain peaceful? But I, I think, actually, I know there's another question we should be asking. See, I was serving as a mentor to first-year college students back in 2015. And as I prepared to speak in a class one day, I came across a quote from Dr. King that I hadn't heard before. It's from a speech he gave in Stanford University in 1967. And here's what Dr. King said about riots. Now, I'm no Dr. King, so just bear with me. All right, imagine you're hearing him speak. Let me say, as I've always said, and I will always continue to say, that riots are socially destructive and self-defeating. But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. And what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, 
and humanity. And so, in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay. And as long as America postpones justice, we stand in the position of having these recurrences of violence and riots over and over again. Now, that was Dr. King speaking in, I believe, 1967, and we've seen a few more of these recurrences since then. Now, was, was King condoning rioting? No. Absolutely not. To suggest that would be to misrepresent King's morals and ideology. However, he was acknowledging that rioting is a symptom rather than the problem itself. And I'm not here to say whether rioting is morally effective or ineffective, but I do want us to ask ourselves, if rioting is the language of the unheard, what are they trying to say? And to answer that, let's look at one supposed riot in particular. To do that, we have to go back to the summer of 1965 in Los Angeles, California. During the night of August 11th, at the intersection of 116th Street and Avalon Boulevard in the Watts neighborhood, a routine traffic stop ignited a series of events that would upend the entire city. And to give us a rundown of what happened, I'm just going to quote directly from a PBS report on the events that happened in Watts. A Los Angeles police officer pulled over motorist Marquette Fry, who was with his brother Ronald. He suspected Marquette of driving drunk, and while officers questioned them, a crowd of onlookers had begun to form. When Rena Fry, the boy's mother, showed up, a struggle ensued which led to the arrest of all three members of the Fry family. More officers arrived on the scene and had hit the brothers with their batons. The crowd had grown and by this point had become angry, and after the police left the scene, the crowd and tension escalated and sparked the riots, which lasted six days. More than 34 people died, 1,000 wounded, and an estimated 50 to $100 million in property damage. Okay, now that's an excerpt from a PBS report. And by and large, this is what you'll encounter when you do some Googling of the Watts riots. Like, this is more or less the standard narrative of what happened. Now, the facts may be correct, but is the story being told the truth? No, I would say it's not. If you read the official accounts of the Watts riots, you'd think the crowd was angered over the arrest of the Fries, or they were aggravated about the excessive force that the officers were using, and that this caused the crowd to descend into chaos for six straight days, basically. That's, that's the narrative that we're told which really plays into our inherent kind of racist beliefs about black people and how we exist, right? Uh, we're characterized as people that are passionate, that can't control our emotions, uh, animalistic at times. And so this narrative that something happened and a bunch of black folks just went crazy and started burning stuff, like this fits into our own underlying racist narrative about the way black people exist. But again, it's not actually what happened. Because in truth, the arrest of the Fries was the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. The black residents of Los Angeles had been dealing with high unemployment, over-policing, and police brutality for years, no, no, actually decades. And the black community was an afterthought, and people were just tired of being erased. They were tired of being ignored, and they were tired of being targeted. 
Not to mention the overarching backdrop of the civil rights movement at the time was playing out. Emmett Till had been brutally murdered just 10 years before this, and lynchings were still taking place across the country, all the while Jim Crow laws were in full effect. So the events that transpired in and around the Watts neighborhood were about more than one traffic stop. They were a series of responses to the constant economic, political, and physical violence that had been levied against the black community. And this response, or these responses rather, were intentional. Which leads me to my next point. This wasn't a riot. It was an uprising or a rebellion. An article was published in Black Perspectives, which is an online publication of the African American Intellectual Historical Society, and this was published in 2021. The article argues that the events in Watts were actually a week-long rebellion against systemic oppression. Allow me to quote directly from the article. A riot is disorderly lawlessness and disturbance of the peace. Order, however, meant keeping black people in their place. Furthermore, in black Los Angeles in the early 60s, high unemployment and hyper-policing with its accompanied brutality did not result in peace for black Los Angeles residents. It was not a riot that occurred on August 11th through 16th. It was an open rebellion against brutal policing and exploitative merchants alien to black Los Angeles and a message to the governing body that black Los Angeles was demanding change. Now, the author, M. Keith Claybrook Jr., makes a compelling case here, in my opinion. He outlines the intentionality of the actions that took place, and it's honestly quite amazing. If you were to compare news coverage of any riot and juxtapose it with the ways that the story of the Watts Rebellion is told through the eyes of black historians, you see a completely different picture begin to emerge. Allow me to read one more direct quote from this article so you have a sense of what I'm referring to. Now, before I read this, keep it, I want you to, to, to just think and keep in mind some of the examples of media coverage that you hear uh, when riots come up, right? Think about the images, think about the narratives, think about what is being said, what pundits are talking about. Just kind of get that in your mind for a second, and then I'm going to read this quote to you. Beginning on the evening of August 12th and early morning of the 13th, black youth would target large department stores and destroy credit records. They would also liberate goods they had pawned in pawn shops that were often exploitative in their practices. Black youth were organized in their liberation of goods from stores as one car would drive up and break out the windows and drive away while subsequent cars drove up to seize and load merchandise. Now, what did you notice? What I noticed and what I was drawn to was the intentionality and the coordination. It's impressive. Now, if you're thinking, yeah, but I bet the pawn shop owner wasn't impressed or, I mean, okay, Ben, but they're taking their anger out on the wrong people. The business owners didn't harass the community or unjustly arrest people. I mean, I'd say you're not wrong, but you're also not right. Because what amazes me about the perspective in this article is that it tells the story of what happened while giving agency to the black youth that were involved. Yes, they were acting out of frustration, anger, and grief. And they channeled those emotions into a coordinated and intentional attack on the symbols of their oppression. They were fed up with police brutality, so they threw rocks, bottles, and bricks at police officers. 
They were tired of being exploited by businesses and having limited or no job opportunities. So they shattered windows, stole goods they had sold to pawn shops, and set businesses on fire. They were intentional and direct in their attacks, which is why this wasn't a riot, but rather an uprising or a rebellion. It was a rebellion against the powers that be, the powers that had kept them in check and kept black folks in their supposed place for years. And if you allow yourself to get swept up into the dominant story about what happened in Watts, then you won't be able to truly see those that were involved, and you won't be able to hear the plight of those that were impacted. At some point, the only language we have is action. So we move. What if we're able to see an overturned car, burning building, or shattered window and ask ourselves, what is being communicated? What is someone trying to tell me? What if we understood those actions as a language of their own that we're being invited to decipher? What if they're not only a response to inaction, but actually a call to action? So what does all this have to do with black history? Black history is actually about black experiences and visibility. When we ignore black history, we actually erase the voices, perspectives, and experiences of black people. Now I know I'm not saying anything that you don't know, but what I want you to understand is that it's about more than ensuring kids know about black heroes, again, like George Washington Carver, Harriet Tubman, or Octavia Butler, though that's a good place to start. Black history is about more than telling the truth of America's racist identity. It goes beyond shadow slavery, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration, though that's a great place to start. And black history is about more than closing the school-to-prison pipeline, ending the epidemic of maternal and infant mortality, or refusing to let any more unarmed black youth die at the hands of police, though, you guessed it, those are also great places to start. But what I want us to do is to honor black history. And to do that, we've got to move beyond the performative celebration and begin to decipher the language of the unheard. So the next time you get wind of a tragedy that has hit the black community and you see news coverage of violent protests or riots, just stop and ask yourself, what is being communicated? What pain is being expressed that I should offer empathy for? And then as you hold those questions, take the next step and find out where the unheard are in your own community. And once you do that, start listening. We've taken some time today to explore the question of what would it take to listen to the unheard? I think we've got our answers, so get to work. Thank you for listening to this episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I'm so glad you're with me on this journey. And if you have questions, ideas, or suggestions for the show, please reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram as Thoughtful Revolutionary, on Facebook as Benjamin J or Benjamin Joseph Tapper, or you can email me at benjaminjtapper at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I can't wait to join you for the next episode. Take care, y'all.